I'm your host, Scott Walden, and this is the Wisdom of the Donut Hole, Episode 1. We call it, So Who Is This Guy, Ron Walden, and Where Did He Come From? Quite a name for a blog and podcast efforts by a guy trying to get you to read his books. Ron's a Luddite that loves donuts, friends, coffee, and an amazing almost true stories. Luddite is a real word. If you Google it, I'm pretty sure you're going to see Ron's picture there, chiseled onto a stone tablet. In his life, the wisdom of the donut hole has meant choosing to dwell on failure and sadness or pursuing success and happiness. Be aware of it all, but always pay more attention to the important stuff. Wish if you want. Appreciate what you have. There was a little bakery in Soldotna, Alaska called the Moose is Loose. A few retired public safety workers, in air quotes, bet their most days around 9 a.m. for coffee, pastries, talk of yesterdays, and of course, politics. This group represented about $20 in bakery business in any given month. Less when you subtract the business they ran off and the free coffee they drank. Considering the bakery could sell a thousand or more apple fritters per day in tourist season, this group was allowed in mainly because returned tourists looked for them there. Like sideshow attractions, dispensing loud laughs and light insults, crowds loved to look at them in an amazed sort of way. One summer morning, four tourists, between 80 and 90 years old, dropped in having heard of the bakery's amazing pastries and the much sought-after souvenirs they sold. The group wore Georgia Tech sweatshirts, and they sat one table away from the book characters. Most mornings, Ron would chat with tourists, fill coffee cups, and answer questions about the area with help from his retired squad. He never failed to come up with new ways to break the ice. In this case, Ron simply asked, Georgia Tech, huh? They smiled, each one shook hands with Ron, and proudly said yes, they loved that school. Ron then asked, so when do you think you'll graduate? After an awkward silence, they laughed and asked questions about the area. He bought them fritters and they bought a couple books. They returned the next couple of days to sit with the old group of guys and enjoy some more laughing. They were missed the next summer though, The donut hole guys hoped they were okay, but they never did return. Locals and tourists alike dropped in each summer to see if Ron had a new book available. A tourist once asked Annie, the bakery's elf-sized crowd control cussing police, who or what is that group back there? To prevent Annie from misleading the visitors, the reply was from Ron's son refilling his cup at the bun coffee maker. Ma'am, that little group represents 150 to 200 years of wasted state time, nothing more. He turned away, returning to the table, while Annie confirmed, Yep, that's true. Then she hurried off to organize the long line of customers snaking from the counter to the sidewalk outside and around the building. The constants most days were donuts, stories, and jokes. Fertile ground for fiction, often told as truth. In rare quiet moments, with a pause in loud talk and laughter, You might catch one of the old fellas gazing into his donut's unimportant part. Look up, grin, and begin a play-by-play that often started, you remember when old so-and-so, yada, yada, yada. Each one of the old fellas would interject, spinning the simple old day story into a new yarn. Ron listened, his mind doing mental gymnastics. Letters swirled around his frontal lobe like ticker tape. Cessation of eye movement uh, usually meant letters had meshed and fallen into his mental scrabble tile holder. With proper embellishment, real sights woven in and characters fashioned, 
that Luddite Ron would sit in front of his arch enemy. The 64-bit green screen MS-DOS PC shaped like E.T.'s head, if it was a cream color. What looked like a 1928 Remington typewriter wire-nutted to a phone cord linked to a PC. There was a dot matrix printer loaded to full capacity with three sheets of stiff, pulpy paper. Paper that made noises like wobbling sheet metal when it pulled from the printer. Yet a year later, in the early fall, shazam! In spite of all that technology, Ron would release a new book. Proofreaders and school teachers were often amazed at how few pictures were inside. They never dreamed they'd see so many multi-syllable words arranged in such coherent sentences from Ron. Strung together, they made fine paragraphs that piled up and finally spilled a complete story out the other side. The donut hole guys swore every story they told was true, or at least could be. In that brief moment of losing sight of the donut, focusing on the unimportance of the hole, stories became as they should have been, if only the storyteller had been in charge. As comedian Judy Tenuta often said after telling a whopper of a story, it could happen. The stories and storytellers would become seeds for plots in books by Alaska's very own author of true-to-life crime and other Alaska stories, Ron Walden. Since 1996, The Wisdom of the Donut Hole has helped Ron create an impressive list of novels starring a roundtable of retired donut-eating, crime-fighting, mystery-solving, wildlife-engaging good guys in amazing and real Alaska locales. Here's a list of Ron's novels as of 2023. Cinch Knot, Pigs, Politics and Petroleum, The Multinational Plot to Nuke the Trans-Alaska Pipeline, Devil's Heart, Native American Lore and Modern Police Work, Ice Blue Eyes, An Alaskan Story of Greed, Life, and Revenge. Blue Sky and Green Grass, Murder, Money Laundering, and Winter Farming in Alaska. Poacher's Paradise, an Alaska Wildlife Trooper novel. Easy Come, Easy Go, Alaska Gold Fever. Brothers of the Badge, Alaska State Troopers, FBI agents, and U.S. Marshals probe an informant's death. The Penny Files, Alaska State Troopers, Unfinished Business. Getting Even, What Goes Around in Alaska Comes Around in Florida. Wyatt Earp V, Alaska Bush Guardian. Alaska Fish Wars, Nobody Wins. Flying Blind, Alaska Adventure and International Intrigue. Alaska State Troopers, Geezer Squad. And now, his newest book, The Fishing Hole, an Alaska Bear Tale. All are self-published by a small staff through Ugly Moose Alaska Publishing at its world headquarters in Soldotna, Alaska, with lots of help from Ingram Spark in printing and distribution. Find Ron's books everywhere books are sold, including at your favorite bookstores and online. Coming soon are e-books, larger print versions, and yes, even audiobooks as soon as that Ugly Moose finishes its donut and acting lessons. The RonWalden.com website is still alive. It's being updated and revised slowly but surely, like those donut shop stories. So you'll be able to contact Ron and even order his books there. So who is this guy, Ron Walden, and where did he come from? Well, it was a 1700s vintage motto, later printed on every box of Mayflower donuts from the 1930s through the 1970s. It was used in political campaigns, including FDRs, to encourage choosing optimism over pessimism. Ron obviously enjoys the 1929 version, written by a restaurant in Charleston, West Virginia, 
targeting their audience of coffee drinkers who often ate donuts called sinkers. It was good for business. It's possible Ron even saw the poem written on cartons of candy, eggs, or goods he delivered across North Idaho, Western Montana, and Washington as a young man. In Ron's life, this little poem encouraged appreciation for what you have. The motto that influenced Ron sold donuts, coffees, posters, and even helped elect presidents goes like this. As you ramble through life, brother, whatever be your goal, keep your eye upon the donut and not upon the hole. Born in the fall of 1934, Ron Walden was raised in North Idaho between Coeur d'Alene and the Montana border in the mining community of Kellogg in Idaho's famous Silver Valley. His family owned a mom-and-pop grocery on busy Cameron Avenue. For decades, it served the community well and with sincerity. Christmas was a real event. Every year, a tall evergreen tree was hauled in by logging truck and placed in a hole in the parking lot created years before specifically for this annual event. An ornate leather chair made of wood and leather was created for the Jolly Man. It was carefully stored every year until the week before Christmas just for this pre-Christmas event. Thousands of mini candy canes were arranged in baskets for elves to distribute to the lines of kids that would arrive early every evening the week preceding Christmas. Just to spend a minute with Santa in his ornate chair, Young ladies and young men from around town were Santa's helpers. Dressed in their finest Christmas dresses and fur-collared coats, sweaters, and boots, they helped keep lines moving and the kids entertained. It was nice to see the kids so excited, polite, and hopeful they'd get their dream gifts on Christmas. Walden's Grocery was Santa's place, and the community inhabited in mass every year. Every year, that is, until Interstate 90 opened, in about 1963 or so, and a supermarket set up shop across the street. Not long after that, Walden's Grocery began to struggle like other mom-and-pop stores. The family that built the supermarket were truly nice folks. There was no malice in site selection. It was just a good location at a fair price. Within a few years, with some Walden family deaths and closing of mining businesses, the Valley's economy diminished along with miners' paychecks. The supermarket offered savings through mass purchasing, parking convenience, even a state liquor store on its lot. They made a point of being small town proud. Before that, there were a few other small groceries uptown and near the hillside. Cameron Avenue was essentially part of what would become Interstate 90, spanning from Boston to Seattle. The sole traffic light on the entire route was at the curves through the small mining town of Wallace, Idaho, about 10 miles northeast near the Montana border. Wallace remains the county seat to this day, having replaced the Boomtown mining days when the county seat was in Murray, Idaho, sometimes called Murrayville, about 40 miles up the Coeur d'Alene River to the northwest. Murray was the site of the first gold find and mining boom in the area. Wallace kept most of Murray's vices for many years, including gambling, after-hours bars, tobacco shops, and card houses. And yes, even the Oasis, the Lux Rooms, and other red light houses remained until the early 1990s. Some were actually connected to the public safety building through a shared door. Locked on both sides, the door connected to living quarters and was used strictly for health checks, pinochle penny a point guard game nights, and firemen selling raffle tickets, of course. The madam would buy them, give them all back, and tell the firemen to sell them again. The big heart stories were true. The back stairs were for customers and delivery of grocery, candies, and eggs. Murray, too, had businesses providing gambling, alcohol, tobacco, sundries, and, of course, cat houses. 
The town had been home for kind-hearted prostitutes with colorful names like Molly B. Dam, which was either a play on molybdenum, a mineral mine nearby, or the misunderstood, heavily accented Irish brogue pronunciation of her surname, Burdan. Unique transient visitors included a couple of the Earp boys, Jim and Wyatt, and others trying to make some cash. Like a couple businessmen that grub staked an old prospector named Noah Kellogg. More on Noah Kellogg later. Most of these places were on Ron's candy and egg delivery route between Kellogg and small towns over Lookout Pass in Montana. Superior, St. Regis, and other tiny shops at bars and cafes kept him in coins, supported his business, and supplemented the family's grocery store revenue. A block west across the street from Walden's Grocery was the Sunshine Inn, once the nicest motel and bar and restaurant within 50 miles. A block east of the store at the intersection of Hill Street was the standard oil service station run by a local family named Cassidy. The station was across the street from and about a block east of a couple competitors, including the Texaco station, Firestone, and what would become Union 76. Further down the street was Sunnyside Grade School, a large brick building behind the large Rena movie theater. Across the street from those facilities was Wellman Brothers Chevrolet and Oldsmobile showrooms and garages. In the 1960s, Wellmans often brought one or two show cars and drivers to town. Might be the Rat Fink Hot Rod one year, a famous race car driver, even a hydroplane race boat. Hard to sit in school across the street knowing they were just a half a block away. When school let out, the walk home sure took a lot longer. Today, one of the nation's and maybe the world's largest auto dealers, Dave Smith Motors, occupies those spaces and most of the lots in town, on through to Coeur d'Alene, selling Dodge, Chevy, GM, and now Maserati and other exotics. Uptown was literally across the tracks and across the Coeur d'Alene River, which was also known as the Lead Creek. Just a minute or two away, Uptown was anchored by mercantile, car sales, jewelry stores, hotels and department stores that included Hutton's and J.C. Penney. Uptown was a patchwork of local bars, cafes, rooming houses, a YMCA with a pool, a bowling alley, gym, and TV reading room, mining and assay offices, railroad offices, union halls and schools, city hall, police and fire departments, a telephone exchange, newspaper office, a high school, and affluent neighborhoods. The town of Wardner, where Noah Kellogg's story explodes in an episode to be aired soon. This is just beyond Kellogg's uptown in an area called Milo Gulch, about a half mile away. Wasn't unusual to see hand-painted sandwich boards on street corners near each of those service stations on Cameron Avenue near Walden's Grocery. The signs touted a station's prices as being lower than the other guys across the street. They all pointed at each other. A large X through a price would be replaced with a fresh painted price through the day as their price wars raged. Sometimes prices jumped to an outrageous sum near 30 cents on every corner, usually during high traffic times when tourists and freight trucks drove through town. Sometimes prices dropped to between 13 and 25 cents, usually during shift changes as miners were heading home or to work. Much appreciated local touch a couple times a month between paydays. Help during hard times. Often prices were the same through the day, hovering around 25 cents. A thickly painted X could make it seem prices had been lowered from the previous posting several times a day. Service stations actually provided service. 
Most of the time an attendant in full uniform would help you. They check the oil and tire pressure, water levels, headlights, and clean the windows and hubcaps all around. Young listeners may need to Google hubcap. They changed fan belts when needed and did major repairs at reasonable cost. They may even slide a fun decoration like a foam ball onto the antenna if you bought enough gas. The stations were father-son gathering points. Young and old gathered around the wood stoves. Yep, there were wood stoves in those gas stations. They talk about the big white-tailed bucks they saw, a bull elk they almost got, and upcoming duck and goose seasons. Boys and men alike bragged about the new shotguns and rifles on the layaway that they bought at Western Auto uptown. Kids bragged about bicycles and fishing rods they bought there too. Ron has always been an avid sportsman and he remains so to this day. He set up a small shooting range in the basement of their home. It was about 40 feet long with thick wood block backstops and soundproofed with egg crates. Gun safety education for the kids was required in the home. Education came from dad and the NRA after school programs. The initial goal was to develop an ability to safely care for and handle a 22 rifle. To absolutely know it's not a toy and understand the immense deadly power that was absolute if it wasn't respected. No demonstration of respect for these things, never practicing gun safety. That meant there were no guns, no hunting, but there would be lots of lawn work. Passing NRA courses and safely hitting targets were rites of passage. As a boy of five years, I learned everything I could at home. At five, I had my own single-shot Marlin 22 rifle with a kid-sized stock. Often went hunting with my dad, Ron, some uncles and cousins. I learned to shoot a lifesaver candy hung on a toothpick from 30 feet. But at 20 feet, I never got through the lifesaver hole without chipping or breaking it. By 12, having completed NRA's courses, including range shooting and demonstrating safety skills, I was given my own Model 870 Remington 12-gauge pump shotgun on my birthday to hunt game birds, ducks, and geese. We cleaned, cut, wrapped, and ate what we took. There was no such thing as shooting just to kill an animal. Later, I had a big game rifle to hunt deer, elk, and bear. Later, still handguns for self-defense and even hunting. The good old days were made better by my dad, Ron, who made sure I understood responsibilities and demonstrated respect for life, family, and responsibilities of gun ownership. Kellogg's in the Silver Valley, famously nicknamed for producing and smelting about 20% of the nation's silver, half the country's lead, and a significant but smaller amounts of other metals including zinc, gold, and cadmium. The smelting process created a thick morning fog that reeked of sulfur, horrible sulfur smell. Most mornings, the foggy smelter smoke, as they called it, hovered in thick layers the length of the Silver Valley from 4th of July Pass near Rose Lake to Mullen at the base of Lookout Pass near Montana on the Idaho-Montana border. Montana and eastern Washington experienced smelter smoke frequently as well. Its burning sensation of eyes, nose, and mouth made it unpleasant and difficult to breathe. That was that way for decades. Rather than saying, kids, it's pretty foggy this morning, mothers would say, kids, smelter smoke is bad today. Cover your nose and mouth on your walk to school. A fork of the Coeur d'Alene River snaked through Kellogg from Wallace and then skirted farms and backwoods until flowing into Lake Coeur d'Alene 35 miles later. It passed behind the Cataldo Mission established by Father DeSmet in 1846 and was later known as Sacred Heart Mission.
Tailings and runoff from the mining process and seepage from massive mile-long tailing ponds near the river along the highway gave the river a continuous milky, silty gray appearance. It looked like a mud flow, even in strong currents. It was dense. The bottom couldn't be seen even in the shallows. The river bottom and banks were coated in layers of fine gray silt resembling a bizarre wet clay. A few years after Ron was born, rumbles from Germany began with Chancellor Hitler creating his version of a master society. A few years later, Europe was invaded. Pearl Harbor attacked and the United States could no longer isolate. It had to step into the world stage as a leader in military might. The U.S. got into the victory ship business, aircraft manufacturing, weapons development, and many other war-related production demands. The Silver Valley offered exactly what was needed. Mining required metals, smelting, refining, and the ability to ship large quantities of resources by rail in support of the war effort. Fences went up around the production and refining facilities. The workforce became younger and more blended with men and women. Timber and lumber industries thrived, contributing immense quantities of structural lumber for the war effort and domestic needs. The railroads and road system provided means of distribution. Many of Idaho's population served around the globe during World War II. Many provided local labor when not in military service to support the country's needs. Agriculture, logging, mining, refining all provided vital resources. Ron came from a blended family. His father wasn't there from the time Ron was very young. Home life was rocky, maybe even worse. Where his father went and what happened to him isn't very clear. He was just gone. Rumors put him in New Mexico, Montana, even Canada and the Yukon. His mother remarried. Ron found a good fit with his family, which would include two sisters and a brother. Ron was involved in the family store early on as a butcher in the meat shop and as a grocer. He drove supplies and sold eggs across Montana, Idaho, and Washington to help the family business thrive. Always resourceful, Ron might credit his family's European to Canadian connection for his drive and foresight. His family history includes a famous historical building and a few blocks of avenues in Vancouver, Canada. The Walden building still stands, thriving as a central feature in Vancouver's history. Located at 4242 Main Street in Vancouver, British Columbia, it was built by Ron's grandfather Arthur and great uncles around 1910. Originally for mercantile and offices, the Walden building has provided low-cost housing for the people of Riley Park for decades as it does now. Check out the Vancouver Historical Archives for photos and more info. In the 1950s, what had been known as the Army Air Corps became the United States Air Force. Ron and his brother Bruce enlisted and trained as aircraft mechanics and drivers. Ron excelled in his class, making it to the top dozen or so in his field. Bruce, a good man and colorful character in his own right, did equally well and went on to establish a family trucking business that thrives today as one of the largest privately owned trucking companies in the Pacific Northwest. It's still a family business. Upon graduation from basic training, having highly recognized skills at his young age, Ron was selected by Brigadier General William LaSalle Lee to serve as part of his personal flight crew, keeping the General's aircraft in tip-top shape. Ron traveled the Orient and South Pacific with General Lee, who was also the vice commander of the 13th Air Force from a base of operations in the Philippines. Before returning stateside in the mid-1950s, Ron would see General Lee promoted to commander of the 13th Air Force. Young as Ron was, older members of the crew respected his decisions and leadership. 
When the U.S. converted a plane for Chiang Kai-shek's use, Ron's crew was involved in prepping, painting, and delivering that aircraft. He thoroughly respected General Lee and enjoyed serving with him until his discharge back to civilian life. Ron and the general went separate ways. Ron returned to Idaho, family, and later to Alaska for more adventures that included flying. General Lee? Well, per his Air Force biography page, he enjoyed a colorful career from his early days as a recruit in the 1920s. He served in World War II as a pivotal leader, commanding the 49th Bomber Wing. He was a leader during the Korean conflict. During his tenure with the 13th Air Force, he trained the Philippine Air Force, evaluated aircraft for purchase and use by them, and he was a flight instructor for the first members of the Philippine Air Force. He even taught General Dwight D. Eisenhower to fly. And General Lee was awarded 12 military decorations, including the Distinguished Service Medal and the French Legion of Honor. General Lee died in 1976. Ron maintains that General Lee's influence as a person, leader, and an amazingly capable pilot provided a new baseline for Ron's life. To this day, you can see the pride in Ron's eyes when asked about his service, his crewmates, experiences, and the general. Recently, Ron's family located a color photo of the aircraft used in service under General Lee's command. It's the same aircraft Ron served and crewed on. It hangs near his desk alongside other important photos of his wife Betty, kids, grandkids, and good friends. When discharged from the Air Force, Ron returned to family life, helping at the family grocery. He had a knack for telling a good story and often reminisced over coffee with friends. There's a pattern forming with that. He met and married a local girl, had two kids, a boy and a girl. They bought a house a few blocks from the store and he hired on as a hard rock miner at Bunker Hill Mine. He worked there several years, but moved on driving a lumber truck and later selling insurance. They divorced after a dozen years or so. Ron's always been handy in woodworking and carpentry. He's created and repaired many large oak-based furniture pieces, fashioned bone, wood, antler, metal, and any other media that people asked him to craft. After remarrying, Ron and Betty moved to Alaska where he worked for a trucking company and as a carpenter. He drove long hauls to interior and northern Alaska during construction of the Trans-Alaska Pipeline in the 1970s. They bought and finished a log home in Soldotna, Alaska. Ron worked at the city of Kenai Jail for years before being recruited to help establish and run a new medium security prison nearby for the state of Alaska. He did that, gaining a reputation for efficiency and fairness. His wife Betty became the first female Fish and Wildlife Officer for the state of Alaska, serving many years until her retirement. The State Trooper Museum in Anchorage, Alaska maintains a small display remembering Betty. After about 20 years with the Alaska Department of Corrections, Ron retired as a supervisor, even having served as acting administrator. Inmates and co-workers respected his fairness, understanding, and firm stance on behavior and job performance. This earned him the name Mr. Wonderful, a unique nickname as not many inside those walls were. He learned to fly, built several small airplanes with a retired territorial and state of Alaska wildlife officer and very good friend named Dan France. Ron owned his own plane, built and repaired many others with friends. At retirement, Ron was recruited as a security officer on the Alaska Trans-Alaska Pipeline, the 800-mile-long delivery pipe from Dead Horse to Valdez, Alaska. Events during the Gulf War inspired his first book, Cinch Knot, 
when critical infrastructure, including the pipeline, became possible targets for terrorists around the globe. More on that when we talk about the book Cinch Knot itself. Betty passed a number of years ago. Ron spends his free time salmon fishing, smoking fish, enjoying great, great, great grandkids, and building furniture for friends. Alaska is his home. It always will be. Though he left the Silver Valley before Wallace, Kellogg, and Murray became favored as TV and movie sets, before Harry Reisner reported the closing of Bunker Hill Mine, before the Hunt Brothers sunk silver prices, before the Superfund designation blanketed the Silver Valley, and long before heading to Alaska, Ron was there, delivering goods to many businesses that would later become sets and backdrops for those movies, series, news broadcasts. Ron was there when they were thriving local grocery stores, cat houses, cigar shops, hotels, and restaurants. Experiences in history inspired him to write his novels. It started as a bucket list thing, wanted to write and publish just one book in his entire lifetime. As of 2023, he's published 14 novels and does several book signings each year. Being an author makes him a businessman again. It's interesting to note that all his books are based at least partly on real events, people, and places, primarily in Alaska, but also the Dakotas, where his in-laws are part of the Sioux Nation, and Washington State, where many of his family still live. In his novel Devil's Heart, Native American lore and modern police work, Ron's proud of his characters, cultural depictions, and locations in the Dakotas, Washington State, and Alaska. To visualize locations, know characters, and enjoy storylines comes through in every book he crafts. All are based on real locations. Characters are often composites of people he actually knows or knew. Since Soldatna's Moose's Loose Bakery closed, many of those characters continue to show up most days for coffee at Ron's house. Each book discussed in future podcasts will include details and history of real locations, real people, composite characters, and even events that inspired his writings. We hope you'll find stories and backstories interesting, entertaining, and enjoyable for the entire family. Ron decided long ago to limit sex, violence, and vulgar language so readers could simply enjoy a good story. Thank you for listening. Please look at the show notes, research those places, and even the people that are mentioned. You'll find a lot of interesting trails to follow. That's it for our bio on Alaska author Ron Walden. Hope you enjoyed it. Not bad for a man that grew up in an Idaho town founded by a jackass and is inhabited by its descendants, right? Next up, episodes tracing the history of the Silver Valley that influenced Ron, sites where he grew up, worked, and raised his family. Later, we'll move on to each of his books without divulging storylines to check out locations, history, and characters related to stories at the center of each book. Talk to you next time with Episode 2, Wisdom of the Donut Hole. Until then, focus on what's important. Always remember these things. The Wisdom of the Donut Hole and the Departed Moose's Loose Bakery. National Donut Day, and that glorious fall day when a new Ron Walden book is released. Thank you for listening. Read Ron's books and visit Alaska. Special thanks to Ray Lankford for the show's new theme music titled The Wisdom of the Donut Hole Theme, an instrumental written, performed, and provided with permission by Ray Lankford of Shoshone County, Idaho. Look for more of Ray's music on his website, Ray Lankford Music and Writing. Thanks for listening.